Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss federal R&D funding, or moreover funding for the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH. With me to discuss the topic is the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, Matt Horahan. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before I introduce Matt, as always, let me begin with some context. A week ago yesterday, May 15th, the NIH director, Dr. Francis Collins, along with five colleagues, testified before the Senate Appropriations Health Subcommittee on Health on the President's Fiscal 14 NIH budget request. On the plus side, Dr. Collins noted, among other things, scientific and technological breakthroughs generated by NIH-supported research have caused deaths from heart attacks to drop by more than 60%, over the past 40 years, and deaths from stroke to decrease by more than 70%. And more than 90% of children diagnosed today with the most common form of childhood leukemia will survive. And lastly, HIV-AIDS treatment and prevention may now enable the first AIDS-free generation since the virus emerged 30 years ago. On the negative side, NIH's budget this year, or fiscal 13, is a cut of $1.6 billion, or about 5%. And if sequestration persists, NIH funding will be reduced by $19 billion between now and 2021. Dr. Collins noted further, according to the OECD in 2008, including both public and private sources, the U.S. invested 2.8% of its GDP in research and development, less than Israel, Japan, Korea, Sweden, Switzerland, and others. In fact, I just read actually on your website, Matt, that in 2011, it looks like the NI, uh, the U.S. will drop to ninth place. Concerning pharmaceuticals, for example, uh, Dr. Collins noted that Singapore's pharmaceutical industry R&D funding for 2009 was five times greater than that of the U.S. on a share of GDP basis. So with that as background, uh, let us begin. Thank you again, Matt, for your time. My first question is, could you just tell us briefly the purpose or mission of the AAAS? Sure. Well, uh, AAAS, uh, we're a general science society established in 1848. Um, we're best known as the publishers of the journal Science. Uh, we also have uh, a number of other programs devoted to science education and literacy, um, international science diplomacy programs, uh, and we have a number of programs in the policy arena. Um, and you know, among these uh, many programs is the R&D budget program, which is the one that I run. Um, uh, this program was established in the 1970s. Uh, it's uh, intended as a resource uh, for information on federal R&D funding and trends uh, for policymakers and for the science uh, science community. Okay, great. And you do put out a substantial amount of uh, research on the federal R&D budget. So let me go to my next question. For um, context, can you describe how federal funding for R&D and specifically medical research and again, of course, the NIH, compares to other developed countries, or per my introduction, how competitive is the U.S., or what is its competitive stature in R&D funding? Sure. Well, so the data on international biomedical research funding um, isn't that easy to come by. But in a general sense, um, you know, in terms of total R&D, there are a couple different ways we can answer that. Uh, one way is by looking at just total, total dollars, absolute dollars. Uh, in that sense, we are we're far and away the world leader. Um, I believe we're about we we fund more than twice as much as China, which is uh, which is number two. Um, uh, and you know it's been that way for some time. It's going to remain that way for for likely some time. Um, and that's again in total R and D funding. Um, if we were to strip away defense R and D, which is a big uh, big big share of the the, the national 
uh, U.S. total, uh, we'd still be uh, way out in front for the most part. Just to note, uh, in fiscal 14, total R&D use side is $144 billion, and DOD is 69 of that. Right, right, right. And that, that's pretty standard. The historical average has been about half of public R&D funding has been uh, for defense. Uh, so non-defense funding is, you know, of course, around 60 or $70 billion a year, which would still put us um, uh, way out in front of, of most others, um, or, or way out in front of everybody else, really. Um, so that's, that's really one way. And I should add, too, we'd also expect the same to hold true in biomedical research funding for the most part. I mean, NIH, $30 billion budget that they have, um, really does stand alone in terms of size and, and, and scale. Um, but that's if you look at total dollars. Uh, if you look at it as a share of GDP, uh, as, as, as in the quote that you mentioned uh, from, uh, from Dr. Collins, um, as a share of GDP, we are still among the leaders, but we're not, we're not quite number one. Um, in fact, if you take away defense R&D, we're right around the OECD average for, uh, for non-defense R&D funding as a share of GDP. Um, you know, but so, you know, so, so there's, and there's a mix of, of countries at the top, including Germany, uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, some others. Um, China will be there uh, someday. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to remember, you know, on the one hand, I, I think most folks would, would argue that we're uh, today in, in really good shape. Um, if we could freeze this moment in time. The problem, of course, is that we can't freeze this moment in time. And so a lot of the concerns that emerge uh, when we talk about um, federal R&D funding are concerns uh, over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, and if you look at the long-term trends uh, as a share of GDP, um, the U.S. has gained somewhat in R&D funding, um, but many others have gained much faster, most notably China. Um, and again, I think we expect this to be true in the biomedical realm uh, as well as you know, the, the, the general R&D realm. Um, for instance, China has pledged, over the next five years, has pledged about $300 billion uh, in investments for uh, biomedical research funding, which if that were to, to actually take place, it would, it would be a larger investment than what we currently uh, put into NIH. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the, the concern, you know, in the long run, again, is, is not so much, you know, I mean, the question isn't so much, are we in good shape today or not? Because I think we are in, in, in good shape, and most would agree. Um, but the question is, in 10 years, in 20 years, what does the mix look like? And I think um, when, we, when we pull out to that, that kind of a time frame, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of good reason for concern, given the investments we've seen elsewhere. Okay. Let's go then specifically to what the current state is of federal funding, and specifically the recent history of federal funding for health or medical research specifically funding for the NIH again, or what has been the federal government's investment in NIH since there was bipartisan congressional support that doubled the NIH budget between 99 and 03, and then in 03 it was $27 billion. Sure. Well, so, so life sciences research, biomedical research, has always been one of those areas that's, that's been part, received particular support from Congress. Um, even before the NIH doubling, um, life sciences research tended to keep pace with economic growth, um, which was not the case in physics, chemistry, and many other areas, uh, in the physical sciences, um, the social sciences. Um, so then in, in 97, as you mentioned, we, had, uh, we kicked off the doubling of NIH, uh, which ended in 2003. Since 2003, um, NIH funding has actually declined by about 10% uh, in real dollars. Um, and, and of course, in, in, um, in very recent history, we've seen some pretty major declines uh, due to sequestration. All right, we'll get to sequestration in a moment. Uh, let's go to the current proposed budgets. 
Again, Dr. Collins testified on the White House's request, and again, I emphasize the word request, yes. for fiscal 14 funding. So what are the current budget proposals, for example, particularly, of course, the White House versus the Congressional Republicans or more over the House budget? Yeah, well, these are wildly, wildly divergent budgets. Um, uh, the White House budget uh, proposes about a 1.5% uh, increase for NIH R&D, about $500 million or thereabouts uh, in FY 2014. And I should add, that's 1.5% above FY 12 levels. 12, right. So, you know, before sequestration. And that would bring it to a total of $31.3 billion for right. fiscal 14. Right. Um, I guess, uh, and so I should add, too, um, for, you know, in that request, I mean, the big priorities are Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's research. Um, uh, NIH has a big data initiative. Um, a brain mapping initiative, um, and translational, uh, translational science in particular would see a pretty big boost. Um, it's important to add, though, that a 1.5% increase above FY12 levels, um, inflation is 4% between 12 and 14. So we're actually looking at, in real dollars, adjusted for purchasing power, uh, we're looking at about a 2.5% decline. Um, so that's the White House budget. The Senate budget would be slightly more generous. Um, for the most, they're pretty similar for the most part. Um, the real trouble emerges when we look at the House budget, um, because the House budget, well, and I should add, too, before I move on to the House, perhaps the single most important thing to note about the president's budget as, as it relates to R&D is a proposal that has nothing to do with R&D specifically, and that's the proposal to roll discretionary spending back to pre-sequester levels. Um, yeah, he calls for turning off sequestration. Right, 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 right. Um, the, you know, the thing about sequestration is that in, in FY 2013, uh, it required these across-the-board cuts. The way the law is written in FY 14, uh, which is the year in question, uh, it, it lowers the overall discretionary spending cap by about $90 billion from pre-sequester levels. The president uh, basically proposes rolling back that cap and returning it to that pre-sequester level, so basically adding an additional $90 billion in discretionary spending on top, on top of, of the on top of Right. On top, well, on top of... Um, uh, on top of where it would have been otherwise, mm -hmm. um, and this is important because you know just about all federal R and D spending is in the, in this discretionary bucket, um, and the impact on this, if this were to actually happen, would basically mean uh, double digit increases for most science agencies, including NIH, above where they ended up in FY 2013. So this is a this is a big deal and a big step. Let, let's stay with sequestration since sure, you went there anyway. Sure, sure. So the Budget Control Act, summer of 2011. Um, included this provision. Everyone thought it would be turned off. They'd find other savers. This is to save $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years or through 2021. As you said, it's split 50-50 between defense and other domestic discretionary. Right. It was supposed to start January of 2013. The Congress put it off for two months. It started March 1. Um, the uh, this will affect, of course, as you know, NIH. CBO estimates that it's really, although it's uh, theoretically $85 billion approximately for fiscal 13, CBO says it's really, for various reasons, really 42, but it comes in full effect in 2014, the point you just made, which means it starts to approximate $100 billion for fiscal 14, 50-50 defense, and the other 50% for right. other domestic discretionary. Um, as you just noted, the president said, let's turn it off. Of course, there's no appetite for that, it appears, at least on the House side of the Congress. Let's then 
presume that if it does continue, and this is Dr. Collins' comment, if it does continue through 2021, that's $19 billion off of NIH's budget. What's, what's the effect of that in and of itself? So you're leaving aside what the annual fiscal appropriations are. What's the effect of that? Well, over the decade, I mean, it, it could be pretty substantial. Um, in, in, FY, in FY13, starting, you know, starting in the current year, uh, we know, for instance, that NIH is going to be funding 700 fewer new grants. Um, they've also got some uh, expiring, uh, some grants that they had previously awarded that are now uh, expiring as scheduled. So in total, they're actually going to be funding about 1,400 fewer grants uh, overall uh, in FY13 compared to FY, um, or compared to what they you know, had originally planned. Um, that ends up being about a 4 or 5% cut. Um, and that's, that's in a single year. Over the next decade, I mean, you know, basically take that figure, multiply it by 10, that's about where we'd end up, mm-hmm. um, you know, roughly. Uh, but the other thing to remember, though, too, is that in FY13, sequestration ended up, because of the, some of the changes they made in the January tax bill, um, basically sequestration ended up being a little bit smaller than it would have been otherwise. So NIH saw about a six, it was, I think it was about a 6%, 5 or 6% cut um, uh, in, in R and or actually no, it was about a, it was about a five percent cut uh, in R and D in FY um, 2013. Uh, but because sequestration in FY 13 was smaller, uh, it the, the discretionary spending caps come slightly lower in FY 14. So it actually ends up being we end up we, what would happen is we would end up seeing an additional two to three percent cut in NIH below FY 13 levels if nothing else were to change. If mm-hmm. if if, if you know, if the entire discretionary budget was simply to kind of move forward one year but shrink in size, we'd be looking at about a 2 to 3% further reductions, which would mean, again, you know, additional grants being cut. Um, so FY13 is almost, an, it, it, it somewhat understates the long-term problem um, because there are going to be additional, if, if nothing changes, there would have to be additional uh, cuts to grants, um, you know, over the next decade. Um, so what this actually means, I mean, apart from, from grants, I mean, it's any number of things. Obviously, there's an opportunity cost. Um, in, in terms of lost research. Um, but I think one of the, the, the most important factors, and I, I think Collins mentioned this uh, in, his, uh, in, in the quote that you cited, um, is the impact that it could have on, on students. Um, there, we're already hearing um, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, anecdotal uh, uh, stories uh, coming from research universities and hospitals and other places where they're having to lay off staff. Um, you know, there may be uh, some investigator uh, at a at a particular university somewhere who has who had planned on having three assistants uh, for the next three years, maybe that's got to become one assistant for the next three years because there's less funding. Uh, research institutions have to change their plans and kind of scale back what they thought they might be able to achieve over the next decade or next next year or two, whatever. Um, so these are you know there there are some pretty substantial ripple effects, and then the, finally the the this is all happening as I mentioned earlier. This is all happening as others, especially China. Uh, Singapore is another one. Um, other other countries are investing heavily in biomedical research, so it wouldn't wouldn't shock me to see um, some of the industrial uh, biomedical research that happens uh, in the U.S. today start to think about moving overseas, where uh, where it is supported, where there are resources. Um, NIH, you know, would remain um, a leader, in, in, a, a global leader in life sciences research, but again, because of the ripple effects on the workforce. Uh, and kind of the international dynamics of, of shifting, uh, shifting locations for research, um, you know, it, 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 it could have some serious impacts on U.S. competitiveness in the long run, again, over 10, 20 years. And the Collins quotation is, quote-unquote, I worry desperately this means we will lose a generation of young scientists, per your point. I have read that 
over the near term, the next three years, a reduction in R&D um, spending is projected to decrease the number of jobs, just to give it a number, uh, 600,000 um, positions. Let's go back to the House <laughs> yes. and the House budget and how starkly different it is from the President's proposed fiscal year 14. And just let me say, uh, for those who don't, uh, the fiscal year budget for the federal government is September 30th, October 1. So fiscal 14 will start October 1. So right. the House budget. Right. House budget. So so we, so we, so far I think we've sort of covered, there, there are really three tiers, I think. Or, you know, when you're thinking about the budget and these budget proposals, there are really three tiers to think about. There's the, really the Democratic tier, which is the President and the White House, uh, sorry, the, the White House and the Senate. Um, they're both pretty similar. Then we've got this sequestration level which is you know, the one that we just covered. Then there's the proposed House level. Um, the House budget, this is not the first time they've proposed this either, uh, but House budget proposes cutting discretionary spending below uh, sequestration levels. Uh, in, the, um, in the life sciences realm and in, in the NIH realm, I believe the, the overall cut would end up being some, something like 20%. It's, it's you know, the, the numbers kind of shift, the, you know, Kind of week to week, depending on. Um, and just recently, we had uh, the House Appropriations Committee release their uh, their allocations. I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but but some of the some of the the estimates that some of the prior estimates are going to be updated here uh, in the in the in the near term. But basically, we're looking at about something like eighteen to twenty percent potential cuts to uh, um, health spending, including NIH, below sequestration levels, um, which would basically mean about. You know, more than 25% cuts to NIH below the president's requested levels. Um, so that's uh, th- these are pretty substantial cuts. And it's, again, it's not the first time that they've actually proposed cuts of this size. In last year's budget resolution, there was a similar proposal to basically shift sequestration entirely away from defense and onto non-defense, um, which you know, which would have had if that had actually happened, it would have had some. You know, sequestration in and of itself is already pretty tough for science funding. If that had happened, it would have been. Twice as bad. Twice as bad. Exactly. Exactly. And this is and and so that basically what's what we're seeing in the House budget and in House appropriations emerging from that budget uh, is the potential for these you know these these much much larger cuts uh, than than sequestration had originally called for. Let me if let me ask you to put a number on this. So as I noted, the president's proposed or requested budget for NIH for fiscal fourteen is thirty one point three three one billion. Give me a ballpark at least. What's the House proposed fiscal 14 NIH budget? If the House budget, it's, I mean, it, so it, it's also, I should make this point too. So the, the House budget and congressional budgets in general, they, they present very top line figures. Um, and the House Appropriations Committee has presented very top line figures. Uh, those figures, I believe, are about um, about 18% below, or some, around 15 to 18% below sequestration levels, if I recall correctly. Um, so, but that, but those proposals are for kind of this broad uh, uh, health, labor health, uh, uh, HHS category. So the way those cuts get allocated doesn't really, we don't really find that out until the Appropriations Committee actually starts moving uh, their bill, uh, you know, later this summer. So, so you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of wiggle room here and a lot of big fudge factor here. Um, but having said all that, Based on the House budget and what House Appropriations has said, um, if kind of everything were to be cut evenly uh, across those general budget, that labor, health, you know, general budget category, 
we'd be looking looking at a NIH budget perhaps around twenty three billion uh, compared to the the thirty thirty one billion. billion yeah okay. twenty twenty say twenty three twenty four billion um, in, in that ballpark which would again be about a about a twenty five percent cut perhaps even larger it, it depends could be smaller could be larger um, and there are other related cuts uh, the house uh, has proposed to HHS beyond NIH, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least initially they proposed zero budgeting, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Yes. And they also called for uh, withdrawing funding for PCORI, the Patient Centered yes. Outcome Research Institute. Yes. So that's, it's, there are more substantial cuts just beyond NIH right. and HHS Right, right. And again, and these are, many of these cuts are, you know, they're, they're new, ver- different versions of previously proposed cuts. I should add too, though, there is the one other big in terms of R&D and, and biomedical research, the other kind of big uh, research program is actually one that doesn't get talked about um, outside of health circles uh, much, and that's the Defense Health Program. This is actually a, a billion dollar, more than a billion dollar uh, annual um, R&D program. It does a lot of research into uh, cancer funding. Um, yeah, I understand at one point they were the largest funder of breast cancer research. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's my understanding as well. Yes, yes, um, they're on the defense side, so it's it's it isn't as hard, it isn't as easy to always track uh, that funding, um, and that's one area, interestingly, where Congress seems to see, Congress seems to love this program, and for the past few years, um, so in FY twelve, I think their R and D budget was around one point two, one point three billion. Every year, and I think this has been happening for, for some years and perhaps even since the prior administration, um, the president proposes a budget, proposes cutting R&D funding in that defense health program in half. Um, and it, this happens every year. And then every year, Congress restores that funding and might add even additional, uh, additional funding to it. Um, so, for instance, the defense health program last year, I think the president had proposed about a, you know, six $700 million in cuts uh, and Congress restored them all and added another $100 million or so on top of that. So that's the other, the, you know, I did want to mention that because it's, it's the one area that Congress does seem to favor. Um, and because it's in the, in, on the defense side, a lot of these cuts, we've been, these, these kind of apocalyptic cuts we've been talking about for NIH wouldn't apply to the defense health program because, it's, because of the way the House views defense versus non-defense. Another piece of the pie. Exactly, exactly. Let me ask you to wade a bit into the politics here. Uh, the Senate particularly has had strong supporters of NIH funding. And as I suggested in the opening, it was bipartisan support. Many of those folks have now left office, and, and some strong supporters are beginning to, uh, for example, Senator Harkin has announced his retirement. Right. So what, what has been the case in the recent past is while the House might have been more harsh, the Senate sort of comes in and rescues the funding sure. uh, for, let's say, more generically life sciences research. What's, what's your sense of the politics of this now, particularly since some of these at least more noted or vocal yeah. supporters may be gone well, or leaving? So, I, so there, on the one hand, there, there still is a lot of support for science funding in general, um, and life sciences in particular. I mean, there's, there's a reason why NIH was able to achieve an R&D, uh, doubling in R&D funding, uh, and other agencies like NSF, NIST, and some of these others that have been targeted for doubling have not. Um, life sciences does continue to have pretty strong support uh, in Congress, um, you know, I think a lot of when we look at these these cuts, I mean, I a lot of them are not they're not these are not cuts necessarily aimed at NIH specifically or aimed at science funding specifically. These are you know, sequestration 
it was it was a across blunt, the board. blunt axe. A blunt, a blunt. It was a meat axe, and there are a lot of folks who, you know, if they could, they'd probably try to find a carve out for science funding. Um, but the politics doesn't doesn't work that way. Um, so I mean, I you know, I think the question isn't so much how is NIH going to fare. I think in some ways the question is how is discretionary spending going to fare, because historically uh, R and D funding has been a pretty steady share of the overall discretionary pie. So if you get folks who are really keen on cutting discretionary spending, well, naturally it's going to end up in, in, in cuts to R and D. Um, so that's kind of the, the the big kind of immediate concern is is not so much NIH specific. It's simply what's the discretionary budget going to look like. Um, if we get that big question sorted, um, and if, if if we can get some kind of agreement on you know some middle ground, something uh, on, on discretionary spending that avoids some of these these you know these these truly awful cuts, um, I you know I see no reason why NIH wouldn't couldn't continue along at its at its at its current level. I mean, I, the the you know I don't think I wouldn't expect to see any major. Increases for NIH, uh, you know, anytime soon. I think there's a lot of folks who, even those folks who support NIH, um, there's also a lot of interest in boosting funding at NSF and other places. So, um, you know, so I, so I, I think in a lot of ways, there are a lot of folks who who'd argue that NIH has it's it's gotten it's doubling it's 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 massive now, um, you know, and you know while it shouldn't be cut, um, you know, it's I think I think obtaining any any big boost is going to be a much harder sell again assuming that we get these big discretionary spending questions uh, out of the way um, you know the, the the problem though is that that's kind of where we've been for a few years now or for a decade now and, and what it's resulted in is, is a real dollar decline um, in NIH funding as we talked about earlier it's resulted I should add too in a decline in success rates uh, in the 80s and 90s the NIH success rate um, and that's that's the rate of successful applications um, was something like thirty percent, thirty five percent in that range. Today it's down to about, uh, I believe it's about eighteen percent. Um, and sequestration would take that even lower to sixteen, fifteen, fourteen percent. So these are extremely low levels. Um, there are a lot of folks who would like to see some increases for NIH uh, to turn around that the the turn around the the decline in, in funding rates and success rates. Um, and generally, would like to see NIH grow, but I just I just don't think that there's, you know, the, the politics aren't really there to, to 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 see through any major increases for NIH at this point. So you make the good point that NIH is sort of the victim of the larger dom- domestic discretionary spending debate. So on balance, and at least in the near term, correct me if I'm wrong, you would say that at best NIH does less worse than other discretionary domestic discretionary domestic spending programs. However, with the fact that purchasing power declines and, and because of inflation, even if they do stay uh, level or get slight increases, but the purchasing power declines. Right. Basically, right, right. And I think, I think that story, the long-term story, will probably continue. I, mean, I think the best-case scenario is that they manage to keep pace with inflation over the next, say, five years, you know, ten years. Thank uh, goodness inflation not, is low. Yeah, yeah right, 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 exactly. Well, and, and overall inflation is low. Inflation in the biomedical sciences is much higher. Uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a harder a harder barter reach. Um, you know, oh, I should even say ten over the next ten years because a lot could change. But over the next five years, I think best case is probably NIH keeping pace with inflation um, because there are agencies that have grown uh, substantially over the past five years. Um, I mentioned NSF, mentioned NIST. 
um, the, the Office of Science within the Department of Energy. I mean, these are programs that have, that have grown in spite of a lot of these larger fiscal issues. NIH has not. Um, and, you know, and, and again, I think that the, pol- the recent politics is probably not that different from the politics that are going to, you know, still be in place going forward, where there are these kind of major overarching fiscal questions that need answering. But once those questions get answered, there still isn't going to be much, you know, there, there, there just aren't, isn't much of a political dynamic to, to expect NIH is going to grow, especially if NIH growing means that NSF or NASA or other agencies can't grow. So, I mean, and, and, you know, science agencies don't really compete against one another for funding, but Congress can only kind of, only, it seems that Congress can only handle growth in a handful of science agencies at one time. Uh, you know, that's really all they can do. And I think, so, so from that perspective, I think the growth is more, much more likely to come outside of NIH, you know, non-life sciences funding, really, um, because like, partly because, again, because life sciences research is much larger than anything else uh, government does except for defense on the R&D front. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we've been, and that's, where I think, where we're going to stay for a while. Okay, thank you, Matt. And with that, we're at our time boundary. But let me ask you to come back again maybe in 6 or 12 months and see where we're at. Uh, hopefully I'll have better news. <laughs> All right, thank you again. Thank you.